I'm going to begin this morning with a riddle. Let's see, how, see if anyone can figure it out. What does every person, now it's a little bit of, you know, theoretical, what does every person who walks into Home Depot have in common? Old and young, man or woman, rich or poor, what do they all have in common when they walk into Home Depot? No idea. You know, it's going to hazard a guess. Why are they at Home Depot? They're, everyone who walks into Home Depot is there because they have a job to do. Right? Everyone who walks into Home Depot is wandering around like a lost puppy dog, usually like me, trying to find that one little screw in a giant store. But I'm there because I have a job to do. Whether you're an old lady or a 15-year-old guy, or it doesn't matter. You're at Home Depot because you have a job to do. Home Depot sells tools. They sell instruments to get the job done. That's like their, I think I just said their like little slogan, right? Same thing with a music store. What does everyone have in common when they walk into a music store? Theoretically, I know. Everyone is there because they want to be a creator, right? Now, maybe you're there with your kid and they're going to be a creator, but you don't walk into a music store just to buy a flute and hang it on the wall. At least, I hope you don't. Or a bio violin. You buy it because you plan to use that as an instrument to do something else, to create music. You see, what I want to see as we go into Romans 1, 8 to 15 this morning, is Paul has a picture of the Christian life where everyone that God brings into his kingdom is brought in because he has a purpose for them. He has a job for them. They are his instruments. They receive, they are recipients of the grace of God, but God has a job to do. God is on a mission. He has a job to do, and he's, he's seeking about accomplishing that task. And we, as his people, first and foremost, we are recipients of that. You know, we're the ones that God, terrible analogy, but with the Sick of Home Depot, he picks us up off the shelf to use us. He wants to use us. We are his instruments. He has a job to do. So first and foremost, we are the recipients of that, as we'll see here with the Apostle Paul. Paul the Apostle is first and foremost a, a believer just like you and me, whom God called and justified and is in the process of sanctifying and will glorify. But Paul has also been called to a purpose. Because you see, we live in a country and at a time where, quite frankly, it's easy to feel really bored with life, Right? Back in the old days, just surviving itself occupied a good chunk of your time. You spent most of your day just getting food and preparing the food and cleaning up the food and surviving skin diseases and other illnesses. and all. So most of life was just survival. Now we live with air conditioning, which would be great if it was a little cooler in here, but we'll work on it. We have air conditioning. We have, we have cars. So much of the daily you know, uh, duties of life we are grateful, we are blessed to not have to worry about. But at the same time, there is, a, there is a state of apathy in our culture, including the church, where, and people just don't know what to do with their lives. They don't know what to live for. They don't have a vision for any task. And I'm not just talking about a specific you know, a job or a specific vocation. We will get to that but a grander vision for the cosmos that includes a sense of mission, 
a sense of purpose, a sense of accomplishment that goes beyond whatever little sphere you have. Because what we're going to see here in Romans 1 to 8 to 15 is that exactly, you can't separate what Paul's going to say here, which is kind of very practical, very pastoral, from the bigger picture that God is at work. And that in, in Paul's view of the world and of history and everything included, he is a part of that work. So let me, uh, let's open our Bibles to Romans 1. Today we're looking at verses 8 to 15. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Please pray with me. Dear God, as we enter into the study of your word this morning, I pray that you through your spirit, would anoint this preaching that it would have the power that I need and that we all need to be transformed in the likeness of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. amen. So Paul opened Romans talking about how he was called an apostle. He talked about how he, the very first phrase he says is, Paul, a servant of God, or doulos, a slave of God. Paul's first identifying characteristic that as he opens the book is to refer to himself as a servant. And now here in these verses 8 to 15, we see more specifically how his serving of Jesus is playing out in his life. Now most of us are familiar with Paul the Apostle and what God called him to do. God called him to be specifically the Apostle to the Gentiles, meaning primarily non-Jewish people. And in light of that, he is writing this letter to the church in Rome, and he says here, why is he writing it? Because I desire to come to you. That's what he says. He says he's been prevented so far, he doesn't say why, but he has a burden in his heart to go visit this church in Rome. Why? As we'll see, he's going to say because God has put a burden on his heart that he wants to go to impart a spiritual gift to them. And he says that I may be encouraged and you may be encouraged. But what we're seeing here in these verses is quite plainly how Paul's apostolic calling, how his servanthood of God is playing out in his, in his own life, which is to go and serve and teach and bless churches. And so that's why he writes this letter. If you want to know why the letter of Romans was written, Paul wrote it to introduce himself and his gospel to the church in Rome. That's why he wrote this letter. Romans is an introduction. It's an introductory letter. It's Paul saying, here's who I am, and here's the gospel that I preach. Because what we, uh, what's clear through these, through these words that we just read this morning is Paul did not start this church. If you've read the book of Acts, you know that Paul's been traveling around the mostly kind of Greek and Turkey area, 
preaching the gospel and churches are getting started. But from, from, the, from the perspective of ancient geography, Rome is really far away. Rome is, is at least one boat trip away, and it's a significant adventure for someone from where Paul is to go all the way to Rome. So that probably explains why he hasn't been there yet. He wants to get there, but he hasn't been there. For, he doesn't explain why, but the, the occasion has not provided itself for him to go. So we don't know where this church precisely came from. It could very well have been, some people uh, postulate that maybe it was at Pentecost, that when some of the, the people there, you know, when, when, uh, Peter preaches, and there's people from all over that are gathered to there to celebrate the Jewish festival, that maybe some of them went back to Rome, and that's how the church got started. Others suggest, well, um, there are people from other churches that Paul had planted, perhaps, because at the end of Romans 16, he mentions a lot of specific people that he clearly knows. He calls at least one of them his fellow worker. And so maybe some of them, people moved around the Roman Empire if you were in certain trades. So maybe some of them went and, and started these churches in Rome. We don't know exactly where they came from. But these believers are there. They call, Paul refers to them as, as a church. And he says here, your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. He's like, give thanks to God that the, all the world is, is rejoicing in your faith. Now, that phrase is probably a, a more kind of a, a, an idio, uh, idiomatic phrase. In other words, Paul does not mean literally all the world. He obviously doesn't mean that South Americans are praising God for the church in Rome. It's a hyperbolic idiom saying basically that that what's going on in Rome, what God is doing there, these churches getting together, it's, it's being proclaimed. People know about it. People, we could just sort of you know, surmise that people in Corinth and people in Jerusalem and maybe people in Alexandria who are believers, they know that God is doing something in Rome. And, and, and they're excited about it. And Paul says, I rejoice uh, and that your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. So we don't know exactly where this church got started, but it does seem to be, as Paul declares, that God is doing something in Rome. And this is significant because, again, as we talked about last week, remember, Rome is the seat of the Roman government. It is the seat of the Roman Empire. You, I mean, you had literally buildings like the Colosseum everywhere reminding you of the power of the emperor, of the might and the glory of Rome. And yet here Paul is saying, none of that matters. What's amazing is that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, now the covenant king, is extending his kingdom, and this church gathering together in Rome is evidence that God is at work. And Paul is rejoicing. These believers in Rome are recipients of the salvation, the salvific work of Jesus Christ. As I said last week, we don't even know who they are, like their walks of life, but they were just like you and me, living everyday life when somehow God got a hold of them. They heard the gospel and they believed, and now this church is getting together. So Paul is rejoicing in that God is at work in Rome, and now he says, I want to come and I want to participate in what God is doing in and amongst you in Rome. Paul's purpose in writing this letter is that he wants to go to Rome and essentially say, look, God is doing this. I don't know if you remember me last week saying, you know, God is doing this. If we want to be blessed by God, we kind of get in, we, we do what God is doing. Paul sees what God is doing in Rome. As an apostle, he feels, as we'll see here at the end of this passage, an obligation to go and to participate in God's work of saving people and strengthening their faith in Christ. So Paul is saying, look, if you imagine a farmer, 
you know, I, I, I dabble in gardening. You know, you plant a couple different trees, and some of them don't seem to be growing very well, and some, want, some seem to be amazing. You say, well, I'm going to focus on that one. So it seems like something in Rome is going on, and God is doing this great work, and Paul is saying, I want to go and help that grow. I'm going to go and help cultivate the church there. So that's why he wrote this letter. It's an introduction to his gospel and his ministry. And we'll see why that's important here in a few minutes. So but I want to stop there and just, again, ask you this question. Do you live your life with the mindset that Paul does of looking for signs of where God is at work? Do you live with a positive, proactive view of the world? Or do you live with an apathetic or cynical view of the world? Paul had every human reason to be cynical. Quite frankly, a lot more than we do. He lived under an, an, a dictatorship, an emperorship, whatever you call that. An empire, right? There was no liberties there. Not only that, but the Christians were persecuted. He used to be one of the persecutors. And I know it's easy to blow Paul up and to blow up the church and make it, look, make it seem like it was this big, big, great thing. But these churches were teeny tiny relative to the grand glory and might of all the temples. I mean, if you watch around the ancient Roman world, there were temples to all of the gods all over the place that would have dazzled you and blown you away. And here you have these ragtag groups of people, rich, poor, old, young, kind of gathering together in house churches, these small fellowships, nothing to boast about. Paul had lots of fleshy reasons, just as we do, to be cynical, to be negative, to be apathetic, but that is not at all the case. He would not have written this letter. He would not have desired to go to Rome apart from a view of God that says, a view of God in the world that God is at work. Really. Not just as a nice cookie cutter thing we say, but Paul really believed that in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as he talked about in the opening of this letter, that God is at work. Do we live with that mindset in our own lives? None of us are called to be an apostle. But all of us are called to think through how is God calling us in our sphere to look for signs that God is at work and to say, I want to go and help God in that area. That could be someone at work that you work alongside that, that you're seeing evidence that God is working in their heart. And you say, man, I want to go and have lunch with that person and just talk with them and just see what God might do. Maybe it's a, a, a Bible study in your neighborhood or maybe there's a, um, a, a pregnancy care center or whatever God burden, might, burden God might put on your heart. Where do you see in your sphere God at work and you say, I, I want to go and be a part of that. I'm going to go help nurture that because I see God is at work there. Do we have a proactive, positive view of the world that looks out each day expecting God to be at work, rejoices at that, and then says, how can I now participate in that? So Paul says he wants to come, uh, he wants to visit them in Rome, and he says this is, a, this is to fulfill his calling as an apostle. He says, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may, may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul sees that God is at work, and, and he, he's been called to be an apostle, so he wants to go, therefore, to Rome and, and to help strengthen them. And he uses this phrase here, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty odd phrase. It's not how Paul normally talks, it's not how we normally talk. What, he, what I believe he's referring to there is, is to his specific calling as, as an apostle uh, gifted to preach the gospel. So the spiritual gift I think he's desiring to impart to them is the, gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. As an apostle, he has been uniquely called and appointed to proclaim the gospel. And, so, and, and what does he do in this letter? That's exactly what he, this letter, in a sense, is almost a precursor of that. It is him imparting a spiritual gift to them. He's proclaiming the gospel. That's what Romans is all about. It's a precursor to when he actually goes there, and I would suggest would do the very same thing. He would say over and over. He'd be doing, you know, take any part of Romans, and he would probably be, you know, going more into details and more explanations. Paul's spiritual gift that he wants to impart is the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Spirit should include that part. That's what Paul wants to do. And what does he say? He says that this will strengthen you. I've been thinking a lot about that this week. Because how often, when I am weak, do I think it's the gospel that I need to strengthen me? How often do I think about the fact that I have all these problems up here, up at the top, and I want to address them all up here at the surface where they're bubbling up. My anger, my temptations, my whatever it might be is all up here. My depression, whatever it might be. My addictions, whatever it might be. I don't have all these. I'm just using me as a... So you're all like, well, what's going on in his life? That's a Romans 7i. We'll get there later. Um, you know, all these things in our lives, they're bubbling up at the surface. And we say, man, I, I just need to address that one little thing up here. But the gospel goes to the foundation of everything of our identity, everything of our lives. And so a lot of times in life, we, we keep just trying to toy with these things up here and say, well, why am I not getting better? Why am I not getting any, why is my life not changing? Why am I not changing? Why, why am I still dealing with this and that? And I think Paul here, when he talks about imparting a spiritual gift to strengthen you, brothers and sisters, we cannot be strengthened in our faith if we do not ground ourselves in the gospel. And that's why, personally for me, I felt burdened to preach through Romans. Because all of us, especially in light of COVID and all the stuff going on, I think a lot of us are feeling a lot of stuff up here. Anger, anxiety, fear, you name it. Marital conflicts, health issues, whatever it might be. And, we're, and all I see in the news and all I see in my own life is just constantly dealing with this stuff up here. And man, we forget that the gospel, we cannot forsake the gospel. The proclamation of what God has done, is doing, and will do, and all of its applications for our lives. That is the starting point. I'm not saying we ignore, you know, uh, obviously, definitely, you know, get treatments, get helps, you know, address these issues, but don't do it in, in, in ignorance of the foundation. Both and. Build that foundation. Strengthen your faith. And apart from that, personally, I believe you could mess with this stuff up here all day long and you're going to see very little progress. The gospel, Paul says, will strengthen you. 
And that's why he writes Romans. He wants to impart this gift to them to strengthen them. And these are people who already believe. But Paul understands that their faith is weak, just as yours is weak and mine is weak. And as an apostle called to preach the gospel, he wants to strengthen them in their faith. And this is why reading Scripture and studying Scripture, although you'll hear it every Sunday as an exhortation, it is foundational to everything in your life. It is foundational. Because apart from strengthening your faith, you will see limited change and progress in your life. He said, verse 12, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So there's two things going on here. On a practical level, Paul wants to remind them, or I should say he doesn't, they don't know. He wants to let them know how earnest he is for them. They've never met, well, some of them maybe have met him, but as a church, they've never met Paul. They may have heard about him here and there. Paul wants them to know he has a personal burden for them. Now, I think there's two levels to see that. On one level, Paul wants them to have a positive view of him. He, he wants to come there. They've never met him. So he wants them to, to receive him, to be positive towards him. And I don't know about you, but if someone tells me they've been praying fervently for me and earnestly for me, that they desire to, to, to uh, impart a spiritual gift, that I might be strengthened, that we might, we might be mutually encouraging one another, that's going to personally make me think, oh, okay, you, you like me. Like, I have a positive view of you. Practically speaking, if, you, if I hadn't met you, maybe you heard about me and said, I, I want you to know, Jonathan, I've been praying for you as you've been preaching. I'm, well, thank you. That immediately gives me a positive impression of you. I think Paul, practically speaking, he wants this church that doesn't know him to develop a positive view of him. That they know that he cares about them. When you know someone cares about you, you tend to have a positive view of them. So he wants them to know that he cares about them. And that he's been praying for them fervently. And that the reason why he hasn't been able to come, uh, he hopes to change that. He wants to come to them. And then he says, I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul is like a farmer, looking out for what God is doing and seeing how can God call him to participate in it. But I want you to see that that Paul is motivated by reward. Paul is expecting a harvest. As I said earlier, he has a view that God is at work and that there is a harvest. And again, back to myself, do we look and, and perceive a world where we expect there to be a harvest around us? where we expect people to want to know the gospel, where we expect people to be saved? Or do we think, no, we have a cynical or apathetic view of the people around us or the world that, that doesn't really expect there to be a harvest? Paul does. Paul expects there to be a harvest. And that says a lot about his faith and what he believes that God is doing. So, he says he wants to come to them, he longs to see them, and, and this is in part to fulfill his calling, uh, to preach the gospel. And then uh, finally, these last few verses, he's, he makes it clear that he has an obligation. He feels an obligation to do this. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I mean, until I studied these verses in more in depth, I always thought they were a little bit kind of like... Um, What's that when you insult someone as a compliment? 
You know, like, I'm called to preach the gospel to barbarians. It's like, wow, that's kind of a, kind of a dig on the barbarians out there, Paul. Or the foolish. Like, it, it kinda, you know, I've always read these before studying them. You know, those phrases are, are kind of a dig, right? It's like meant to be a compliment. I'm under obligation to preach the gospel to these people. But at the same time, calling people barbarians or foolish seems, a, seems kind of like a, you know, doesn't seem like a very godly apostolic thing to do, right? Although as a minister to youth, I feel called to preach the gospel to barbarians. Got a few jokes out of that. All right. Um, but so what's going on? We have to understand Paul, and this is, this is so key, guys. Whenever we come to scriptures that, that make us go, this is a little bit unusual, we can rest assured there probably is a very good explanation if we take the time to slow down and chew through it. So what's going on here is from Paul's perspective in the Roman world, now there's a little history involved here, so buckle up, but from the, in the Roman world, it was called it was a Hellenistic culture. What that means is, good old Alexander the Great, when he conquered all of the Mediterranean, all into Persia, all into India, Greek culture spread throughout Paul's world, essentially. And that culture was seen like ours today. That was, the, that was sort of the baseline culture of Paul's Romanized, urbanized world. Okay, the Mediterranean world was fairly urbanized for the ancient world, meaning lots of cities, lots of infrastructure, relatively high levels of education, minimal by our standards today, but more so than the people outside the Roman Empire, right? And so from his perspective, as the apostle to the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, there are two basic categories of non-Jews. There are people who live in the Roman world that, would be, that in, in an idiomatic way could be referred to as Greeks. They were not biologically, ethnically Greek. It was just from the Jewish perspective. That's an idiomatic way for referring to all those people out there in the Roman world. They're, they're Greek because they all kind of imbibed the Greek culture from the perspective of the Jews. Beyond Rome, though, there's Africa and Europe. And from Paul's perspective east into Persia and into India, barbarian is a term that means foreigner. It doesn't mean, you know, you're, well, it could possibly mean, um, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're axe-wielding, you know, ox-horn, helmet, fur-covered guy, right? The word barbarian in Greek just means foreigner. It, it actually, it comes ultimately from the word to babble. And even where the word uh, uh, Babel or Babylon comes from. So barbarian was just, in other words, people from non-Greek, non-Roman world. So if you're a Jew, Paul's called you to be an apostle to the non-Jews. You have two basic categories for that. The people in the Roman world, the Greeks, and then barbarians, people outside the Roman world. Now I say that because this tells us a lot about why Paul wants to go to Rome. See, Paul didn't want to go to Rome because, oh, well, the emperor's there. And if I'm in Rome, maybe I can get some influence there. Maybe I can have some sway. If I'm closer to political power, maybe that's what it will. Or Rome is prestigious. What more, what more prestigious place could there be than Rome, the seat of the empire? Right? Those were not what Paul was thinking. As the apostle to Gentiles, Rome was a crossroads of all the nations in Paul's world. Not all the nations, literally, but all the, Rome had over a million people in it, which was huge in the ancient world. In fact, after the collapse of Rome, it wouldn't reach that number again until like the 16th century. 
It was a huge melting pot in the ancient world. As Rome, as an empire, went all out, people from all over the, the world were coming to Rome for various reasons. So if you are the apostle burdened with a task to preach the gospel to non-Jews, what more strategic place could you be than in Rome? Where God is calling, where there, there are people there from what was called Gaul in Europe, where there are people there from Africa, people there from Persia, people from all over the known world were going to Rome. And if you wanted to preach the gospel and reach the nations, you preach in Rome, you, by God, God is at work, you, 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 um, you reap a harvest, and then those people are also traveling around, and they're going to go back. They're going to go back to Persia. They're going to go back to northern Europe. They're going to go back to Africa. And some of them are going to go back as believers, and churches could be planted. That was Paul's vision. What was driving Paul was that God was at work, and Rome was a strategic place to preach the gospel to Greeks and to barbarians. And he does this because he's under obligation as an apostle to do this. He feels the burden from God to do this. But I just, even just this morning, just thinking about, what an amazing thing to say. I'm under obligation to preach the gospel? That's an amazing, I mean, that's not a selfish obligation. That's not a self-rewarding obligation. He is, he's saying, I'm under obligation to give the good news to the nations. So he says, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel uh, to the Greeks and Romans and to the wise and to the foolish. Again, the wise and the foolish, uh, idiomatic way of referring to sort of Hellenistically minded people and, you know, what we might call primitive people. Non-civilized in the ancient world's perspective. So in essence, all of the kinds of people that would not be Jewish from his perspective. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So this explains why Paul uh, desires to go to them. And this it also explains why he wrote this letter. This, this letter is a preparation for his, what he hopes to be his personal visit. Now from the book of Acts, it looks like it did not materialize at the time that he wrote this. And you know, if you read the book of Acts, he ends up uh, getting to Rome via imprisonment. Uh, but there's some indications that when he was imprisoned, he kind of did that strategically. He appealed to Caesar... They were going to let him go because uh, they had no reason for holding him. And then he appealed to Caesar, and they're like, well, we got, we got to follow the law. He's a Roman citizen, so he, get, he gets to have his case heard in Rome. So you get a sense that he was being strategic of trying to, to use worldly means to achieve what he believed was God's end. So it doesn't look like when he wrote this, those plans materialized at that time. However, we can all be thankful that the work of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit inspired him via that occasion, the expectation that he's going to go there, that occasion is what led him to write this letter, which has, of course, had a huge impact on so, I mean, billions maybe, may, may not too strong of a word, of lives around the world, changed and sanctified and transformed by the spiritual gift that Paul desired to impart to the Roman believers. So you and I today, if you've been ministered to through the book of Romans, I'm sure you have, you've been a recipient of Paul's desire to impart the spiritual gift, the gospel. So a couple of applications. First of all, again, I've already said this one. I, I, I want to exhort myself and you not to imbibe the negativity, the cynicism, the apathy of the culture around us. 
I feel, especially, you know, I'm 42 now and God has been very gracious to me. I have a wonderful job. I have a family. I have a marriage. But when you, you know, I know when you're younger especially, you're still trying to figure out, what does God want with my life? What am I supposed to do with my life? And you, you face a million different options and, and now on social media you bombard with a million different lifestyles and choices and it just feels like you're just in a giant quagmire and you don't know what to do. Let me encourage you to dwell upon God and his mission. God has a mission. He himself is on a mission. He has a task. And when you know that about God, it changes your life. Because now all of a sudden, God isn't just some dude up in the sky that you talk about or pray to every now and then. God is active right now. He's doing something. And when you believe that, it changes your life. Here's what um, one uh, person, uh, Christopher Wright, here's what he wrote. He said, uh, now this, there's, some, there's some theology in this language, so bear with me, I'll, I'll, you know. But here's how Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God, talked about how I think Paul understood from his background in the Old Testament, which was his scriptures, what God was doing. He says, The Messiah was the promised one who would embody in his own person the identity and mission of Israel as their representative, their king, their leader, and savior. Through the Messiah, as his anointed agent, Yahweh, the God of Israel, would bring about all that he intended for Israel. But what was that mission of Israel? Nothing less than to be a light to the nations. The means of bringing the redemptive blessing of God to all the nations of the world as originally promised in the title deeds of the covenant with Abraham. For the God of Israel is also the creator God of all the world. Through the Messiah, therefore, the God of Israel would also bring about all that he intended for the nations. The eschatological redemption and restoration of Israel would issue in the gathering of the nations. The full meaning of recognizing Jesus as the Messiah then lies in recognizing also his role in relation to God's mission for Israel for the blessing of the nations. That's a lot of big language. But what he's saying there is from Paul's perspective, the Messiah is co-equal with the mission of God. That why did God send the Messiah? Why did the Messiah do the work, Jesus, the work that he did of dying on the cross and raising from the dead? And why did God, you know, all the way going all the way back to Abraham, what was God doing? God was fulfilling his covenant promises to his people. And, and a big part of that fulfillment, go and read Isaiah and other passages in the Old Testament, is that God was going to send uh, the word out to the nations and that he was going to bless the nations through Israel and that there was going to be an ingathering of the nations. And that's what grounded Paul's sense of calling and purpose. Do you have a sense of God's mission in your life today? God is still doing this mission. Until Jesus comes back, God has one mission. To glorify Jesus Christ. And, the, and, and all that he did by, this, by, saving, uh, by saving his people from all tribes, tongues, and nations until Jesus comes back. That's what God is doing. And he calls us as a church to participate in that, in our little spheres, and whatever that might be. All of us have a part to play. But it starts with understanding that God himself is on a mission. He is actively involved right now. And, and you and I stand as recipients of that 
when we became believers, you became a believer because God was at work and God saved you, and now we are called to be participants with God in what he is doing. So secondly, um, there's a, you know, one of the really earliest missionaries, this kind of ties back to that, one of the earliest missionaries uh, to the Native Americans was a man named David Brainerd. Now Brainerd was a, um, he was, he had, his, his original plan was to go into uh, to, to, to college, and for various reasons some things happened, that didn't work out, and so he was going to go be a missionary. I'm looking for my quote here, if I can find it. And um, as he was doing that, here we go. Uh, as he was doing that, he was being examined. And here's what he said to, to, to the examining committee. He said, here I am, Lord, send me. Sound familiar? <laughs> David Brainerd said that, here I am, Lord, send me. Send me to the ends of the earth, send me to the rough, the savage pagans of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfort on earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be but in thy service and to, to promote thy kingdom. You see, when you have a, a vision of God that he's on mission, then you say, send me. Send me on mission. In Paul's case as an apostle, it's a very particular, very technical thing. But in your case and in my case, we are also called to be on mission with God. To have a heart that says, here am I, send me. But we don't know what God's going to do with that. We don't know what his plan is. But we have that disposition in our hearts. Lastly, I'll close with another missionary, Hudson Taylor, who went to China. Here's what he said. And by the way, none of these guys are perfect. Don't, don't think I'm quoting them because they're amazing all-stars. They're human beings with lots of flaws. But they have some good things that they said. Hudson Taylor said, God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. Paul, we, we want to blow Paul up and make him, oh man, Paul the apostle, Paul this brilliant theologian. In Paul's day, a lot of people didn't like him. For starters, you know, he, you know, he got his start as an apostle? Yeah, persecuting the church. Not, not a lot of people were fans of Paul. On top of that, um, you know, even see, in one of, his, uh, one of his letters, he talks about how people say, you know, that uh, he's mighty in his words, but in his presence, he's weak. There were lots of people that did not think that highly of Paul. Do not make the mistake of just because we, had, we look back on history and think, oh my gosh, he was this great, everyone revered him. No. I mean, some dude even fell asleep and died when he was teaching. He rose him back from the dead, but still, Paul was not this amazing person, this unbelievable superhero of the faith. He was an average human being. More so than that, I would suggest to you that Paul had probably more human reasons to discount himself from, from being a part of God's work than you do. Have you set in judgment on the, on the martyrdom of other Christians? Have you actively gone out seeking to grab Christians, little moms and dads and normal people, and haul them to jail? No. And yet, Paul did not believe that discounted him when God called him, he went. A lot of times you say, God, I have this stuff in my life, or, or you can't use me, or, or I'm, I'm not like the apostle Paul. And Paul says, that's gobbledygook. That's hogwash. God does not look for people of great faith. He looks for people ready to follow him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your, your, your truths contained in your word are nourishment to our souls. And even as we look here at this 
verses 8 to 15, God of Romans, where Paul is setting forth the occasion for why he's writing this letter and for why he desires to go to Rome. We see in the midst of these words truths that, are, that will strengthen our spirits, grow our faith, and ground us in the view of you and of the world that will lead toward godliness. Help us to have minds and hearts that are not fixed on ourselves, but are fixed on you. Help us to have hearts and minds that don't ascribe your glory to worldly success or worldly power or fame or, or, or pomp, and, but rather know that it's often just like Christ in the meek gatherings of believers in little places around the world proclaiming your name that we see truly fulfilled the glory of the gospel being made manifest and bearing fruit and changed lives. And God, I ask for myself and for all of us here that we would, we would see you as a God who is on mission and that we would pray fervently as Paul did that you would use us to bless those with whom you are calling and working. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.